Amen. Amen. All right. So the Pilgrim's Progress is where we are and we are dealing with Christian's journey toward the uh, wicked gate. W-I-C-K-E-T. The word literally means straight. It means narrow. It means small. It's an English word, a Saxon word. It was not uh, a word that existed in the first century A.D. or in the time of Christ, who is the one uttering this 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 analogy. Christ is giving an analogy in Matthew chapter seven. You know, there's a difference between analogies, between metaphors, between parables, between similes. I've taught you guys all that. The subtle distinctions often have overlaps, but a uh, an allegory will be an elongated story that is metaphorical and has analogies within it in order to convey to you and I spiritual realities that are more concretely comprehended in their doctrinal form, but it's given to us in a narrative form. And as we've stated before with Pilgrim's Progress, the Pilgrim's Progress, technical terminology as I'm getting behind some of the history around John Bunyan, uh, the the account has been fabulously received all over the world now for some uh, 400 years and uh, it's still very popular. Uh, the journey of Christian, which is his name properly by his parents, as I stated on the Wednesday class, when we call him Christian, we are not saying that he is a Christian. We're only calling him Christian because that is his proper name. His name could be Christian Lee, Christian Jones, Christian Smith. His mom and daddy named him Christian. John Bunyan is using him as an example of the journey of the Christian and what will become important for us as we continue to work through the 10 stages of which we're at stage number one, moving to stage number two, is that as we try to make correlation between uh, the pilgrim's journey and maybe our own, you do want to always remember that the pilgrim's journey is really coming from the standpoint of one person's journey. That means their journey, that is the pilgrim's journey, does not necessarily constitute all of the factors that would go into any other believer's journey, or it is not laying down a strict parallelism between the pilgrim's journey and your journey or mine or other people. We talked about that before, but it's really critical to make sure you know that here because what you're compelled to do with the pilgrim progress and rightly so is deconstruct it, to analyze it and critique it. That is its design. It was written for that purpose. It was written so that the believer are the person in pursuit of God who can also be, as we stated before, a believer for a while. This is the controversial but necessary challenge of the pilgrim's progress. The pilgrim progress will give you examples of people who appear to be on their way, but never ultimately making it. And the, the nuances are something we have to discern as we work our way through the scriptures is extremely important. The big caveat I want you to remember is that to call Christian Christian does not mean that he's a Christian, at least not yet. And if you can hold that, that, that paradox, his name is Christian, but he may not be a Christian in view, then you can understand three major categories of God's will in the area of our salvation. 
It's what we call protology or the things that go before salvation. And often in our churches, we're not taught this. Because as I stated to you last week, most of our American European churches are so caught up into pragmatism, they want outcomes right away, that they cannot conceive of a God fashioning your redemption even before you had a being so that there is a protological, protos means before, there is a design before you are saved that leads up to your salvation. There's a design before you're saved that leads up to your salvation. That's called predestination. So in the area of predestination, God purposes all things to work together in a way that it brings you to him in a saving knowledge of Christ, which upon point of contact, when you enter into a contact with God in the person of Christ, as is where we're going with a Christian, you will know that once Christian makes a vivid, visceral contact with the crucified Christ, things change. Now, there's a bunch going on before that, which we must not play down. The God who saves you is also the God who calls you, and the God who calls you is the God that created you. So we don't want to fail to understand predestination or the working of God before our salvation because it all works together. If you can keep up with me, sis, Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Here is what we call the golden strand of salvation, and it's important for you to know this. You and I have to know, as the Old Testament has taught us, that God goes before us as a forerunner to prepare our path that leads us to salvation, which also includes the place we were born, the time we were born, the parents to whom we were born, the way we grew up, the difficulties we went through, the challenges, the impediments, the weaknesses, the failures, the atrocities, all of that is poured into the ingredient of what we call predestination. Does that make some sense? And for God, it's all working together for good. When a child of God comes to understand where he is in Christ, he can look back and see that. So the scripture says, for whom he did foreknow. See that word foreknow? That's the idea of having an intimate plan and purpose for you before you had a being. This is not the term prescience or um, omniscience. This is not the idea that God knew you beforehand. For no means to have an intimate claim on your life before you knew him, he knew you. It's important for you to get that. So uh, you know how I am. I have a tendency to want to grind down into things to help you get it. In our, in our present generation, we often are very gener- generic with phrases and terms. The Greek term gnosis in the New Testament, gnosis, is a word when applied to the term for no, because that's where it is right here. Prognosis, prognosis, prognosis. Like when, when you're sick and a doctor actually evaluates you, he can tell you what your problem is and he can tell you what it's going to be down the line and he can tell you what the outcome will be if you do certain things, take certain measures. He knows beforehand the outcome, but he knows it intimately because he knows you, he knows your condition, he knows your circumstance, he knows the factors that need to go into your healing. That's called foreknowledge. 
It's not that he knows you in general like he knows all people. A, a, a doctor has people that he knows personally because they're his patients. Then he knows human beings in general because he studied, you know, anthropology. But when you know someone personally, that's a big difference than when you know people in general. Am I making some sense? So you and I know that when God has a people for him, his own self, he calls them his chosen one, his elect, his chosen people. And they are personally known by God in a way in which God does not know other people. Now, I know that's a challenge theologically, but it's important to get. This is Amos, again, chapter three, around verse four. You only have I known out of all the people of the earth. And it's not that God doesn't know all nations and know all people, but he had entered into a special knowledge with Israel called the old covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. Am I making some sense? Right. These are distinguishing factors. This is why in Matthew chapter seven, as Jesus is working through what we're going to deal with tonight in terms of the wicked gate, he calls it a straight gate. He warns in Matthew chapter seven, does he not, that if a person does all kinds of external religious works, such as cast out devils, heal the sick, raise the dead, open the eyes of the blind and comes to Jesus on the last day and yet have not submitted to him in the reality of their sinnerhood and their need of his redemption and a real work of grace and regeneration. What will he say to them? I never knew you. Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. So you see what I'm doing. This is what I'm doing with you, whether you know it or not. This is called theology proper. What I'm doing is helping you get God straight before we get the conversation as to how he's getting us straight. I'm helping you understand that God uses language in uh, univocal ways, meaning the idea of knowing you is more than the idea of simply being your creator, God. When God says, I know you, he's saying that I have foreknown you in an intimate, in a personal way that circumscribes your life so that you are predestined to meet him at a particular time, on a particular place, in a particular way, so that the outcome is you know him in the saving mercies of his pardoning grace. That's exactly what he's saying here. For whom he did foreknow, he also did what? Predestinate. There it is. And he predestinated them to be what? Conformed to the image of his son. I want you to take that clause and only understand one thing with that phraseology. To be conformed to the image of his son encompasses the totality of what it means for Jesus to have assumed a human nature. This is called the hypostasis. God manifest in the flesh. And then having assumed that human nature, Jesus went through the total process of submission to his parents, growing up in their home, obeying them, and then one day leaving his home, entering into ministry, serving his father in heaven for three and a half years, and then dying on the cross, being buried, raised again, and ascending on high to take his seat at the right hand of God. That's what it means to be conformed to Christ. Did that make some sense? All right, so let me make an application because it doesn't. What I mean by being conformed to the image of Christ, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That's the Bible. No man can know God, has seen God at any time. Only he who is in the bosom of the father, he has revealed him. That's John 1, 18. What that means is you and I can't know anything about God if Christ doesn't reveal him to us. Now, there are all kinds of ways in which Christ does that. He does that as we look upon Christ in the scriptures and learn about his person. We go, ah, that's how God is. Remember what he said in John 14. If you have seen me, you have what? Seen the father. 
But we also know the Imago Dei, of which the Bible is clear that Jesus is the image of the invisible God precisely and accurately, Hebrews chapter 1, 2. We also know about the Imago Dei by experience, meaning this, and I want this to come home and then we'll be able to drill down into our account for an hour, open up for some questions. Everything that Jesus went through as a human being was necessary for our salvation because you and I need salvation from conception to the grave. So conformity to the image of his son is the idea that God brings the totality of our life under the supervision of all of its events corresponding with who Jesus is in his childhood, in his upbringing, in his submission to his parents, in his ministry calling, in his suffering, in his preaching, in his living for God, in his being put to death, in him being buried, raised again, and exalted on high. Everything about the totality of Jesus from the time of his conception to the time of his resurrection are things that pertain to you and me because we need to be saved in total from conception to glory. And you and I know if you are serious about biblical theology, if you're serious about biblical theology, God teaches us anthropology, how mankind came into the world. And then he teaches us how we fail. And then he teaches us how we need a redeemer. And all of that is a story, is it not? It's a whole story. So everything about the story of Christ and everything about your story has to, in a certain way, line up and harmonize and run parallel so you can see why Jesus became a human being. So I'll give you our colloquialism here at Grace. I said it the other day, but I want you to own it. Everything that I am, he was for me. Everything that I am, he was for me. That's one side of another coin. And everything that he was and is, I am in him. This is called the doctrine of union and identification with the one in whom we are being conformed to his image. Did that make some sense? Please get this, because this is critically important. Why would we be spending the next four, five, six, seven months studying the Pilgrim's Progress if it didn't have a vital uh, significance in relationship to us learning about Jesus and learning about ourselves? Why would I be? I don't know that brother John Bunyan. Like we do have some things in common, like we went to jail together and everything like that. We both are preachers and I probably will end up going to jail in the next five years for preaching the gospel, as did he. So I'll learn some things about that. We do have some other things in common. We had a bunch of kids together. He did as well. So there are things with which we have a lot in common. But the most important person with whom you want to have everything in common is the one that assumed your nature. Am I making some sense? So so salvation is comprehensive. It's not just at the point in which you come to realize you're a sinner and you trust Christ as your savior. This encompasses your whole life. This is why in a minute when we get to stage uh, two and we deal with uh, the pilgrim Christian beholding the glory of God in the crucified Christ and a radical change occurs where the 
burden on his back falls off. His journey takes on a whole new tenure, does it not? And yet every part of that journey going forward is important to us as well, because there are similarities which which every believer goes through some of the same thing. I hope that helps. This is what we call protology. Then we have what is called soteriology. And soteriology is where you and I are. And then our lives conclude with what we call eschatology. Protology before, soteriology now, eschatology then. That's called the beginning and the end. And Jesus said that's who he was. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and I am the last. I am the beginning and the end, the Amen. He is the word of the living God and nothing comes into being and makes its progression to perfection apart from Christ. That's making sense now, right? All right, so let's anchor down into our first point in our outline and walk it through. By the way, how many of you guys kept up with me on the Wednesday class? I just need to know how many, okay, 40%. I'm gonna do a little talking in terms of point number one, but I really do want to get to point number, uh, I want to get to point number four in our outline for tonight, um, hopefully, because I really want to pick up at the interpreter's house on Wednesday, maybe Tuesday or Wednesday, because it's time to go into the house. And we can talk about, you know, why, uh, why uh, Bunyan wants us to understand there needs to be an interpreter in your life to help you understand the Bible And then we can ask, why does that take place before the efficacy of the cross is revealed to Christian? We can talk about that. In in fact, again, let me say this. I'm glad we got all you in the house. Please listen. The goal of the study of the Pilgrim's Progress is to ask a lot of questions about where is this in the order of salutis, in the order of salvation. How does this work? Is this a pre-conversion event? Is this a present conversion, a post-conversion? Is this before regeneration? Is this after regeneration? Am I making some sense to any of you guys? All right, good. Under point number one, the restoration of the pilgrim to the path. You guys see that? The restoration of the pilgrim to the path. That's where we are with pilgrim having escaped. Worldly wise, man. And by helper being put back in the way. And then he meets who? He meets evangelists and evangelists helps him by admonishing him and correcting him. And he's glad about it. And he raises the question to Christian, Christian, do you see that wicked gate that I pointed you to the first time we met? And what did Christian say? No. He said, no. And this is why, um, evangelists admonished him so significantly because what had happened was when Christian, when the pilgrim called Christian began his journey, he had a straight pathway to the wicked gate, but he veered and deviated because he didn't know how to stay on the straight course. He's naive. He's young. He's ignorant. He's gullible. He's vulnerable. Am I making some sense? As often all of us might be, particularly in our newer uh, days in our journey, when God is drawing us. And so that's important to know. I love this under point number one. I had an impulse to do it. Sub point A, correction leading to compliance. Christian was corrected and he did what? He complied. Would you agree with that? I mean, when evangelism was done, the boy was saying, is it any hope for me to be saved, right? So God had really worked on him to humble him, to help him understand what his problem was. 
And so he complied. Uh, Proverbs 6, 23, reproof of instructions are the way of life. Reproof of instructions. And I could quote Hebrews chapter, uh, <clears throat> chapter, uh, Hebrews chapter 12 as well, starting at verse 5 and following. All whom the Lord loves, he does what? So immediately what, what Christian is experiencing, even though we might suspect, stay with me, that he's not yet converted. He's called and he's being drawn and he has a knowledge of God's word, doesn't he? And he's not being let go to his own devices. His buddies have already departed from him. His family thought he was crazy. There's something noble about what's happening with Christian. Would you agree? God is drawing him. And so the doctrine of predestination or perseverance of the saints is playing out, is it not? And the preservation of the saints, God's going to get him to where there's a seal on his life. And that's extremely important for you and me because I've talked to you about the application of this kind of thinking to our kids. I I hope the applications that I'm sharing with you uh, in our classes are helpful to you because you and I may settle into the mystery of our own salvation because we have nothing else to do, but we'll often be inclined to want to make it simple and easy for our kids. As if you can do that and you can't. Your kids have to go through difficulty just like you did. Am I making some sense? And in some cases, their difficulty is more difficult for you than it is for them because you're a parent. And so you're thinking about all of the surreptitious angles and ways and behavior and backwardsness of your kids is extremely, extremely taxing on you, particularly moms. And if you could, you'd help them hurry up and close with Jesus so they can get on the other side of the cross and experience some power. Right. But God knows what he's doing. And so I want you to look at subpoint uh, B in our outline. And then I want to quote a verse from the Psalms that we talked about. Confirmation leading to what? Commitment. Confirmation leading to commitment. Galatians chapter six, verse one and two. So uh, subpoints A and B I'm going to give to you. I want you to look at Galatians chapter six, one and two. Subpoints A and B I want to give to you as believers. And here's what I want you to know that in terms of the character evangelist, You and I want those qualities. We want the quality of being an evangelist who has enough care for sinners that we tell them the truth at the appropriate time and in the appropriate way and that God would be pleased to use that truth to put men and women on a path of salvation. Did that come home? See, now we're not dealing with Christian right now. We're dealing with Christian's helpers. And that's what Christian, that's what Bunyan wants you to do. He wants you to, Check out every helper and and also every foe. But he wants you to check out every helper and ask the question, Lord, am I evangelical? Do I love people enough to tell them the truth, even if I have to be painful about it? Do I do I have the gift of being able to point men and women to Calvary in a way in which it moves them forward in that direction? That's a very good question, because it actually gets into what we were talking about Uh, as we were dealing with the gifts of the spirit. Now, I'm going to drill down into this a little bit. So don't don't be alarmed. Don't be don't be shaken up. This is just what PJ does. There are things that you and I can do for the kingdom and we can do them. Dunamai, we have the ability to do them because those are gifts that God gives us. 
You and I can't do anything and we can't do everything, but we can do some things. And so when God employs through you gifts that he gives to you, you will see yourself exercising those gifts. You may not be clear on the gift you are exercising, but it shows up every time in a productive way because that's God's gift in you and through you. And listen, it has nothing to do with you in terms of your preparation, your qualification, your IQ, because if you like me, you're a dummy anyway. And actually God works a whole lot better with dummies than he does with PhD folks. And that's only because the distance between the gift and the dummy is so broad that people obviously know God has to be working through him because he's so dumb, right? Um, And it's important for you to get it, though, because you have gifts and they show up. God's not waiting on you to discover them for him to bless somebody when you are just leaning into relationship. When you're leaning into relationship, God ain't waiting on you to figure, Lord, which gift do I have? We, we talk about that, and I don't want to get into that real big. Just learn how to discover your gift. This is what we say. Pay very uh, careful attention to what you are inclined to and how you operate and how God blesses it. Not everything you do, God blesses. And, and, and at that point, you have to look at those times when every time you touch something, it turns into a cactus. You go, okay, that ain't my, okay, that ain't my gift. That ain't, that's not my gift, right? And that's important to know as well. Evangelist is a profoundly important person, is he not? Because he has to show up a second time to help Pilgrim on this journey. And the second time he shows up, Pilgrim is set. Is he not set? I'm done. I'm headed to the gate. Nothing's stopping me. Listen to uh, what Galatians says. Brethren, if, if a man be overtaken in a fault, was Pilgrim overtaken in a fault? If a man be overtaken in a fault, you which are carnal, restore him. Is that what it says? Right. And that idea simply means to be mature in Christ. It does not mean to be some profoundly, you know, uber male or woman with all kinds of charismatic gifts. It just means that you're mature. You're mature. You who are uh, spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of what? Meekness. Meekness there is the um, is the combined quality of humility before God and confidence before men. I'm going to help you with that one. There you go. Meekness is the combined quality of humility before God and confidence with men. Does that make sense? I'm being short and brief because it's Friday night and I don't want to draw you out too long. But I do want you to get a biblical concept of meekness. We could go to the Old Testament. Moses was the meekest man on the earth in that day. That's the Bible. We can go to the New Testament. There's none meeker than the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the Bible. And if we take both of those persons and then many other have have exhibited this quality, what we know about both of them is they walked in their authority. So they, they were humble before God to be able to walk in the authority that was derived, derived to them from God, derogated to them from God. But at the same time, and because of that, it made them confident with human beings. So when you and I are walking in our authority, we can be confident with people. Did that make some sense? So I want to work with confidel because confidel is the Latin term that means God is with us. I've told you that before, right? I want you to get theology. Confidence is not just a braggadocia attitude that you have because you know something. Confidence is that when God is with you, you have this sense of knowing that what you are doing is right. And you don't have the conflict of, 
of the idea of doing something because it's done out of the pride of your own ego or because you're pressured to do it or because there's a reward behind it. You're doing it because you're confident. Am I making some sense, child of God? All right. And, and what's beautiful about confidence, and we're always trying to instill confidence in people who appear to be lacking it, don't we? All right. So what often is the issue around confidence is a person hasn't learned how to simply walk with God. Please get that. It's really simple. Confidence missing is the inability to detect when you and I are walking with God or not. All right. So when I don't have confidence, Really, what I'm saying is God is not with me in that thing. It's not that he's not with me. He's just not with me in that thing. Did that make some sense? It ought to make sense because God is everywhere present. If you're a child of God, this is what you know. He will never leave you nor forsake you. But when we're talking about God being with us in a thing, we're talking about God being with us in a purpose. Okay, so I'll give you one example just in case I'm causing you to scratch your head. Joseph. Everything Joseph did prospered. It was only one reason why, because he didn't have great favorable circumstances in his life. Everything about his life until he got to the throne was very questionable. I would have never signed that contract, Joseph. Boy, you should have read the the fine print because you went through all kind of trouble. But everywhere he went, he was a blessing to people. Was he not? And that was for one reason. You know what the text said? And God was with him. That's all the text said. That's all the text said was God was with him. So that's the beautiful thing. And God was with him. What does that mean? God's going to use you. He's going to work through you. And when he does, give him glory for it. That's all give him glory for it. So I love this. You who are spiritual, restore such one in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be what? Right. So remember, I told you trials drive you to God. Temptation drive you away from God. What I love about this admonition is what it's saying to you and me, hurry up and grow up so you can help people who get in trouble. I love this. I love where I'm at right now in this space. These are good quips. Are they good quips? Hurry up and grow up so you can help people who get in trouble. Good life. You aren't going to help anybody if you're constantly wallowing in your infancy and in your pre-adolescent state as a spiritual, as a, um, as a child of God who needs to grow up. Because when you and I are in a sort of premature state, we spend most of our time worrying about our own issues. Am I making some sense? Right. So, so maturity shows up in your life. When you when you sense and develop a level of equilibrium where God is with you and the promises of God are such as God is working in you, the will and to do of his good pleasure. I'm lowering my voice because I want it to come home. The God is with you and working in you the will, the will to do of his good pleasure. And so the mystery of Christ in you is that things get done. For one reason alone, God is with you. And once you settle into that, you can become confident enough to quit really spending all your time thinking about you. That makes some sense, right? Right. Again, I can see here a long time and the clock is just flying for me. Um, The child wrestles with relevance and significance. The child wrestles with relevance and significance. 
He's cool in his naive state of zero to seven or eight because he's in this building block dynamic where he's getting all of these fundamentals to life down. He's learning his ABCs. He's learning language. He's learning his environment. He's learning how to pull the right coattails on people that love him and care about him. He's developing his powers. Am I making some sense? While he is hyper engaged in that, he is not self-conscious unless you traumatize him. So the child should be free to engage in the field of exploration so he or she and they can develop all of their apparatus as a human being and also begin to discover their powers. Am I making sense? Right, because when once they hit puberty, then self-consciousness is necessarily going to be there because they're getting ready to individuate themselves from their parents. That makes sense, right? So when you're in the house with a couple of cool parents and they, they got your back, you can just, you know, walk and stumble and fall and get up and mama gonna go there, there and, and daddy gonna say it's all right, but you got to get on up and start walking and, and stumbling and falling and get back up and realize that this is the way it goes. You know, we don't, I don't get to not stumble and fall because the only way I'm going to learn how to walk is to go through that process. And then after a while, you get good at it. And now we have young teenagers who are now gifted kinetically They have potential for a lot of things. They're taking on some skill sets that gives us inklings. Boy, there's some potential with this girl, some potential with this boy. Am I making some sense? But then you got to deal with those terrible from 12 to 17 and 18 years. Oh, where they're struggling with identity. See what I'm getting at? And in that struggle with their identity, what they are struggling with is confidence. They're struggling with confidence. And if there was a way in which we could um, organically uh, cultivate in them confidence, then they would be all right. And the reason I use that construct, organic confidence, is because there's so much hyper therapeutic sort of medical psychological gobbledygook that we pour on our kids to keep them too soft to handle real world issues. I'm making some sense. Am I making some sense? So, so is it okay for me to keep talking down this line to finish it up? Because application mode is so important to me. So, so, okay, think about it like this. Let's assume that Christian is God's child. But God is dealing with Christian the same way I'm talking to you about how we should deal with our own kids. Can you see that now? That's all he's doing, letting him stumble and fall and bump his head and get in trouble and figure things out, Right. And get on up, son. You got to keep rolling. You, you haven't, you haven't, there are three doors this brother got to get through. Three doors. And it's doors we all have to get through. One is a gate. The second one is a door. The final one is glory. Y'all know what I'm talking about. And so um, it's really important for us as parents. We really are delighted when our kids show the equilibrium of confidence when they get old enough to now, you know, start carving out their own way, whether it's a job, whether it's education, whether it's a career. We're super happy to see them land on their feet and begin to make decisions. That's what God is doing with Christians. So here's another portion of scripture that I want you to see so we can go on. Psalm 119, verse 59 and 60. I want to quote this. I've quoted it for years. But this is going to answer the question that came up in one of our Q&A's around repentance. And I just want to kind of just uh, massage this one because what um, 
what Christian did merited repentance, did it not? The mistake that Christian made merited him repenting. And he did repent, didn't he? He showed serious remorse, serious sorrow for what had happened. Listen to what the scripture says. I thought of my ways. You guys got that? I thought of my ways. That's, that's not happening much with Americans today. They're not thinking on their ways. I thought of my ways. And I turned my feet unto your testimony. So the psalmist here is talking to God. And what he's saying is, Lord, I'm evaluating myself and I'm looking at my conduct. And what the feet is referring to is conduct, your path, what you're doing. I thought of my ways and I'm looking at the way I'm going. <laughs> and, and, and I subjected my feet to your word. I thought of my ways. I turned my feet unto your testimony. That's good, isn't it? Right. And, and this is what God will do. He will help us to understand we're kind of off the path. And look at the next verse. Here it is. Verse 60. This is what David, the psalmist says. I made what? I made what? All right. I want to pick that up in a minute because this is going to get to the question I want to raise about goodwill. We're almost there. Be patient with me. He says when he figured out through God's word that he was going the wrong way, he hurried up. He didn't equivocate. He didn't vacillate. He didn't argue and debate. But and, and I want to get into the the um, the concept of repentance here, because that's what's going on here. Repentance is cultivated by the mind being shifted from a point of error to self in relationship to that error. Like when you and I go astray, this was laid out in one of our previous outlines when we go astray, that is the Greek term planos. It means to err from the path. That's the Greek term planos, E-R-R. And it has a cosmological connotation. The stars that fall are erring stars. The stars that hold their place in the hemisphere, hold their place in the constellation. They hold up because there's an internal energy given to them to stay where they need to stay. They are operating to according to a divine orbit system, are they not? And when they go out of orbit, that means they're erring. They're called falling stars. And when you and I err, we're like falling stars because we're not holding our place in the solar system to be lights and guides to people walking in darkness. The metaphor makes sense, right? So what the, what the psalmist is saying here, I hurried up. Not only did I hurry up, so here's a positive and now here's a negative, and I delayed not. You guys see that? I hurried up and I delayed not to do what? Keep your commandments, which is what I should have done the first time around. But this is called repentance, metanoia. And it has these stages. It's a change of the mind. Second Timothy chapter two, verse 24 and 25. I want to pull this up and, and tap on this because this is going to just give us some deeper insight as to how it is that that Christian got back on the right path. Okay. He got back on the right path. I'm, I'm completely fascinated by the personality of Christian because the, the thinking of Christian, his mind and his, his actions are out there for us to see, like King David. His minds and actions are out there for us to see. King David is, is no holds barred. He, he opens his mouth, doesn't he? He tells you when he's in trouble. He tells you when he's sinking. He tells you when he's glad. He's telling you when God delivers him. I mean, that brother just plain telling the truth. That's called yada in the Hebrew. Yada. It is the term from which we go to know. 
okay, or to praise God. They're two sides of the same coin. To know and to praise God. Yada is to praise God. Oh, that men would praise the Lord, right? That is the combination of hallelujah, hallelujah, yada, hallelujah, to praise the Lord. That's the idea. And the servant of the Lord must not strive. So, I mean, evangelist dealt with Pilgrim, but he wasn't striving with him. You don't argue with people. You don't threaten people. You don't wrestle them down. People don't change their minds because you beat them in a logical argument. They really don't. Have y'all figured that out? They don't change their mind because you give them the straight facts. Now, you still got to give them the straight facts. I'm not saying don't do that. You still got to give them the straight facts. But what you don't have to do with it is add insult to injury and come with a kind of domineering attitude or self-willed aggression, if you will. You don't have to do that. The servant of the Lord must not strive, but be what? Now, when you hear that word gentle, there should be two ideas that come up in your mind. Both of them are persons. Do you know who that is? Jesus, right? He's, he's gentle, right? And meek, right? And then the Holy Ghost. Because gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, faith, goodness, temperance, self-control, gentleness. So when the Holy Ghost is working on you and me, uh, uh, definitely if you've been a ruffian like I am, I'm just a plain ruffian. I got a long way to go. His goal is really to chip away at my rough edges to make me more gentle. And a lot of us know that's what God has to work on in us, gentleness. Because a central characteristic of submission to God is gentleness. Okay, that's a quality that has to show up if I am to be confident that the situation that I'm entangled in is not about my ego. All right, so notice, and the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto some men. Okay, there you go. I'm glad you woke. And apt to do what? But to do it in the context of what? There it is. Boy, that'll test you. Won't it test you? It'll test you definitely with your kids, but it'll test you with a lot of people. Some people it's hard to be gentle with. And it's hard to be patient, but both of those qualities are essential. Now look at the next verse. Here's the reason why. And I just wanted to drill down into the idea of repentance. The idea of repentance. Look at it. In meekness, there it is. There's that word again, right? In meekness, instructing those that do what? Right. So a lot of times you may not, you may not vividly or uh, obviously know that when you are engaged with a conflict, in a conflict with somebody, particularly if they're wrong, they're opposing themselves, if that makes any sense. If you can assess that they're opposing themselves, that's to your advantage, but it's also a placard from God to you. Hey, 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 they're not against you. They're opposing themselves. So don't you take it personally which a lot of people love to take things personally when folks don't agree with them. Am I making some sense? Well, if a person is not agreeing with you because they are in a situation where they are opposing themselves, they are in a worse case scenario than you. 
So once you can recognize that they're behaving or thinking or holding an idea that doesn't correspond with reality, they have been led astray. They are maybe in a deception, a temporary one or a powerful one. This is common for all of us. That they're not necessarily coming out of that, that mesmerizing, fixated uh, disorientation, that error, just because you tell them they're wrong. And if it's your assignment to deal with them, your job is to make sure that you are operating out of a gentleness and meekness that demonstrates God's presence with you and your confidence in him and not you and I operating out of an emotional kind of uh, tyrannical control over the situation. If I'm pouring too many emotions, if I'm pouring too much emotion into a situation where I'm dealing with someone, then I know it's about me and not God. Hurry up and know it, child of God. It's about my ego. I got to be right. I don't have to be right. If I already know that that individual is opposing themselves, if I know that, this is not about me being right. This is about them overcoming self-opposition so that they can actually discover what right is. Would you agree with that? Right. So this is extremely important in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. If God, peradventure, will do what? Give them repentance. Please follow that clause. If God will grant them repentance. You don't make a person repent. You can't bring about repentance in anybody. That power, that dominion, that sphere, that access, that domain is not yours. You can can actually force people to agree with you. That is not repentance. You can make them do stuff. That is not repentance. Repentance is when in the mystery of God being present in the discourse and the dialogue, You give the necessary information, you give the necessary exhortation. In some cases, it might be the necessary admonishment. Remember what we learned that that evangelists had to admonish him. But only God can change his mind. Metanoia means the changing of the mind. So when the mind is shifted so that it's no longer self-centered, me-centered, it can actually see what's happening in the scenario. This is where when we're in arguments, the goal is to get at the thing and not the person. Once we can begin to see the thing, that individual can create some space or find space between them and that thing. And now they have a little less emotional tie towards self-preservation than they would if they're so close up on that event as to see no distinction between them and the event. And y'all know what I'm saying is true. If we create a dialogue argument, if we get into a conflict with someone and we're really making them more of the problem than the problem itself, we are tying them to the problem and they see no distinction between themselves and the promise. And they need to save themselves from you if if they're doing that. I remember having a pastor friend tell me this all the time. Uh, Pastor Milton Howard. This is when I was really young. And he was doing missionary work in uh, Mexico for many, many years. Uh, and uh, I'm, I got to remember the name. It'll come back up. But the ministry he was doing there had him and another pastor, Pastor Phil Howard. Uh, no, uh, it'll come up. Uh, doing work for about 20 years in Mexico. And they were having very little success 
with our Latina brethren coming to Christ. So much Catholicism. But people were coming, but not a lot. And they were doing work for 20 years. They had learned patience, hadn't they? Because when they left, the soil was ripe for other ministers to go in and more people came to Christ. But here's the point that he said to me when I was very young. He says, now, you know, Jesse in, in, in the country, in, in, in the South, JC, JC. Now you got to listen to me, son. Listen to me, son. Um, I ain't going to ever let anyone beat me in an argument. Even if I'm wrong, I'm not going to let them know it. That'll come home in a second. Because there are people for whom the issue of winning an argument is about how did that person come to you? Did they respect you when they came to you? Did they create distance and space between the event and you in order to respect you when you when they laid out their arguments around the event? See what I'm getting at? If they just came to win the debate and disregard you, like my brother said, I'm never going to let them win the debate. And you just all you have to do is hold your position. That's how you keep a person from winning the debate. Am I making sense? Hold your position. And you, the person that wants you to, to kowtow to their position is going, you're stubborn, you're stubborn, you're stubborn. Well, that stubbornness is simply saying, I'm not going to let you win because you're not coming the right way. I'm helping some of y'all in relationships right now. You know I am. I'm helping some of y'all relate. If you don't get it, it's too bad. Because in some cases, it's just simply the way you come. And what the text is telling us, come right and leave the rest up to God. Did that make some sense? All right, let's let's go on. Uh, I want to move on to our our second point. I'm going to try to be brief with this so we can get into our third and fourth. So point point number two, the earnest knock that opens the what? The earnest knock that opens the door. This is exactly where... Um, uh, the pilgrim uh, named Christian, when he gets up to the wicked gate, you'll read the text and it says, and he knocked and he knocked and he knocked, didn't he? He knocked and he knocked and he knocked. And we unpacked that at length on Wednesday. So you can go back and read it. But we have three sub points and I want you to capture this. This is coming out of Luke's gospel, chapter 11, verse nine, where Jesus says, ask. And it will be what? Given to you. And then he says, what? Seek and you shall what? Knock and it shall be what? All right. So all I want you to do with that trifecta, with that sequence, sequence A, ask. Sequence B, seek. Sequence C, knock. Now, now follow this. I'm going to use a, I'm going to use a, I'm going to pantomime this out. Okay. Sequence A is what? So now I need to try to figure out what's going on. Lord, what's going on? What he's going to tell me? Seek it out. Do your research. Pursue an answer. Is that what he's saying? Pursue an answer. Ah, you don't just get an answer just because you knock. You're going to have to get on your camel and ride. You're going to have to actually now engage in a journey. You're going to have to start seeking and isn't this what pilgrim is doing? Is not the pilgrim seeking? Are you and I not seeking? Right. So A is ask. That means be humble enough to know I got a problem, Lord. Can you help me? 
So point B is seek. And you guys remember what we learned on Wednesday with that. This is um, uh, Psalm 119, verse 10. I like this. And there's another one that will come up. But listen to what David, the psalmist said in Psalm 119, verse 10. Are you there? Here it is. I love this. This is beautiful. With my whole heart have I what? Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Is that a beautiful proposition? With my whole heart have I sought thee. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Is that not the pilgrim? He wandered from God's commandments. He wandered from God's commandment. And when, and, when, and when evangelists admonished him, he warned him, hey, you too easily let worldly wise men turn you away from the way you should go. And, and now for a Christian, he's going, whoa, how gullible am I? Right. And so here again, he realizes that he really wasn't seeking God with all of his heart. He couldn't have been right. He was half hearted. He was uh, naive. He was gullible. Was his heart much more earnestly inclined after the second uh, confrontation with evangelists? What's the answer? Absolutely. You remember what the text said? The text says when he left from evangelists, he didn't say nothing to nobody because he had become aware of how dangerously close he was to slipping into error. See, now he's more earnest about his journey. This is what I love about the book. I mean, there's so many things that we could derive out of. But think about how good it was for him to go through the slew of despond and to get delivered out by help, and then to get admonished by by the evangelist, now his heart is much more girded up, is it not? And from there, guess what? Nothing happens but him getting to that wicked gate. See? And often that's what is required, you guys. God is teaching us uh, frequently that we'll say that we're going to be earnest, but we're not. We're saying we're going to do a certain thing. Lord, I promise you I'm going to do it. You don't do it. Right. And so we have to ask, right? We have to ask and seek. And I think the other passage I share with you was in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse uh, 12 and 13. Listen to what Jeremiah 29, 12 and 13 says. You guys know it, but I want to put it there again. Here it is. Then shall you what? Call upon me. And you shall what? Go and pray unto me and I will what? That's the ask. That's the ask. Is that the ask? Sure. The seek is in the next verse. Look at verse 13. And you shall what? Boy, is that not a good corollary? Well, Jesus is the one who wrote Jeremiah. He gave us Jeremiah as well. So you can take Jeremiah 29, 12 and 13 and correlate it to Luke chapter 11, verse 9. And you shall seek me and you will find me. What a promise. When you shall search for me with all your heart. <clears throat> did pilgrim, did the pilgrim find the door? God is good. Is he good? God is good. It is good. <clears throat> I want to <clears throat> I want to move on. Because I, I am just elated by <clears throat> the person that's going to open this door. And I need to wrestle with you just a little bit before we do some Q&A. So under point number three, this process requires what? Who knows the answer? Patience. That whole process required patience. It's going to produce patience in you. Hebrews chapter 10 Verse 35 through 38. Listen to it. This here describes where Christian is from the beginning to now. He's now he's knocking at the wicked gate. 
We're getting ready to talk about that and what happens when he's snatched in. But I, I just want you to hear this word. Cast not away, therefore, your what? Which has great recompense of what? Right. Didn't worldly wise men almost get Christian to cast it away? Y'all with me, right? And this is why evangelists really wanted to pull out his belt and whip. I'm using country terms. I know you can't talk like this in the 21st century. I understand this is abuse in the 21st century. But if you go back, remember what it said about evangelists? When he saw Christian, he was stern in his face. What are you doing here? And Christian just began to melt. Like a big brother getting on your case or daddy, right? I could tell you some stories. That's why I whipped my kids. I did not pay Dr. Spock or none of them any. I, I whipped my kids and I didn't whoop them bad. They'll tell you I wasn't some, some, some maniac because I saw abuse growing up as a little child. I know what abuse is, so I didn't. But boy, the rod and reproof drives folly away between the ages of one and a half to two, if you do it right, up to about seven or eight. By the time you're seven or eight, you should be moving away from whipping in a corporal sense into a kind of modality of different modes of discipline to help the child get it, okay? Just going to help some of y'all way out there because some folk will come to me and say, my child acting up. I'm thinking about whooping them. So I'm thinking about whooping how old are they? They're 16. Look. <laughs> You, you way, you way late at 16, okay? And if the child lets you whip them at 16, they're playing you. You're not playing them because they say, man, this whipping don't matter. I didn't got these kind of whipping. Go, go ahead on, get, get, get what you need to get because when you're done, you know, I'm back out there. If, if that's the price, that ain't nothing. Right, my backside got hard about seven years old. I went, oh, is this all it takes? Seven years old. Is this all it takes? Right, because corporal punishment is a first form of discipline and it's called pain in order to teach the kids that there are consequences that will matriculate if you keep down this path. But then it has to move into more educated modes of discipline. Am I making sense? It's extremely important to know that. Cast cast not away your confidence, which has great reward, recompense of reward. Let me walk this through. Verse 36. For you have need of what? There it is. That after you have done the will of God, you might receive the what? Is is Pilgrim receiving the promise now? He's there. Boy, we can celebrate. He made it to the gate. He made it. Now, we're not done, but I'm just saying, when you get to the gate, you have gone through some things. If our kids get to the gate where they're knocking on the door, Lord, open to me. Some things have transpired. It's important to know. Verse 37. For you, for yet a little while and he that shall come will what? And will not tarry. Is that the promise? And here coming is not referring to coming on the last day. It's talking about coming in power to bring you into a greater revelation of his promises around redemption. That's particularly what John Bunyan wants us to get out of uh, Pilgrim making it up the hill. Pilgrim is going to make it up the hill and enter into another exponential revelation of the glory of God. That's Christ coming. And I want to uh, be able to deal with that when we get there. All right. So one more verse, verse 38. I think I'll walk this through. Now, the just shall live by what? Which means they also walk by what? 
And then they also die by what? That's exactly right. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. There it is. The drawback person are all of those parties that came a different way and they weren't being kept by God. Does that make some sense? And it's a lot of them. That's what Jesus is saying. If you guys remember Matthew chapter uh, 13, listen to the text of Matthew 13. I'm at verse uh, 13. I'm going to read 13 and 14, then we're going to go on to our next point. Listen carefully to the language. It's so powerfully rich. Here's what Jesus said. Therefore, uh, I'm sorry, Matthew 7, verse 13. This we'll get to next week when we get to the interpreter's house. Matthew 7, 13. Enter ye in at the straight gate. You see that first line? I've talked about that. That's called an imperative. That's a command. That's not an option. Enter ye into the straight gate. He didn't say if you wanted to. That's an imperative, right? So what he was saying is there's no other gate to enter into, and that is the gate, enter into it. That's an imperative, that's a command. Makes sense, right? And, 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 and note that Christian is there to enter in, is he not? And here's what Jesus says. For wide is the other gate, and broad is the other way that leads to destruction, and it's easy to get to that gate. And it's easy to get to that road. It's fundamentally effortless. Notice what he says. And many there go thereby which go there in verse 14. Here it is. One more verse here. Matthew 7, 4. Because what is the gate? All right. See that word there? I told you what that is. It is the, the Greek word thelebo, thelipsis in the Greek, and it means tribulation. Thelipsis is tribulation. Here are the several ways in which you can translate that. It means to be in distress. It means to be afflicted. It means to be troubled. It means to be compressed in. It means to be pressed down. It's our same Greek term that was used concerning the woman with the issue of blood. And she saw Jesus way up there. And in order to get to Jesus, she had to do what? Press through. Because it was a straight. It was a difficulty. Okay, it was a tribulation and she knew that she had to get to him because the answer was in the what? Him, as we're learning, right? The hem of the garment. But she had to get through it. Now, if she wasn't seeking Jesus with her whole heart, she wouldn't have made it. See what I'm getting at? Y'all keeping up with me because straight is the gate. And what is the way? Can I say something here? Uh, getting through that straight gate and going into the narrow path, what Jesus was indicating was once you get through that small little gate, which John calls the wicked gate, because in England they played cricket and cricket has this concept around small little three little small gates where the balls go through. In the cricket game, if you guys know it, that's how narrow that is. We've talked about the narrow, straight, small gate that you have to go through, so small that you can barely fit through it when you get in, which means you can't take anything with you. And it's the idea that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from works. You don't bring anything with you. It's too much to bring. You can't get through that gate until you let everything go. But faith in Christ. Did that make some sense? Not good works. Not your pride, not your arrogance, not your accomplishments, not your ego, not your IQ. Not your lineage, not your genealogy. 
Nothing but hope in Christ will get you through that door. And then when you get on the other side of the door, what help, I mean, what goodwill will tell you is this path is narrow and difficult. Did that make some sense? And we would want to talk that through. I don't mean to scare you. It's not meant to be scary. It's meant to help you understand the definitive nature of the gospel in terms of the exclusivity of the call. That you don't get to get through this small gate and then play games with your salvation by being on such a broad path that you can divert to the left or divert to the right or take a meandering turn here or meandering turn there. And it's all still good. You guys remember what Goodwill said to Christian when he got on the other side of the gate and he said, hey, the pathway is now. He says, what? There is no way out. He said, oh, there are tons of ways out. If you want them. All kind of people find their way out, but the path is straight. And when we when we begin to think through that, I'm going to give you one concept around that. Can I give it to you? Uh, This will be what is called a historical interpretation. I just want you to get it. What John Bunyan was teaching when he said, when you get through the door, get through the gate. The reason you got through the gate is because of the book. The book led you. Your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. But that book has to lead you to Calvary, too. When you get through that gate, you stay in that book. Because the difference between saved folk and lost folk in the church in that day was people who were Protestant versus people who were Catholic, who had opened themselves up to all kind of ways of salvation. Did that make some sense? I'm talking Christianity. The two pathways was Catholicism because you guys know Catholicism is wide open to all kind of mystery categories, wide open to a total ecumenism, wide open to all paths lead to Rome. I can teach you that fully, but I'll just tell you what to do. Spend about $2,000 and go to the Vatican. And I've been there. I loved it. By the, the moment you walk up to the Vatican, guess what you see? You see idols of men everywhere. Idols of men everywhere. Yes, you see the 12 apostles, but then you see bishops and popes everywhere. Why? Because it's the Bible plus. Then you got obelisks in the center of the Vatican and other icons. And this is all about world conquering and taking the Alexandrian library and bringing it into the Vatican. And when you get in and start meandering through the Vatican, you are going through an excursion of secular world history with all the idols, all of the artifacts, all of the icons, all of the Greek gods, all of the pagan gods, all of the Hindu gods. Am I making some sense? And the inference in all of that is that all of these are pathways to God. That's too broad for me. I'm a brother from the hood. I got to have it simple. Am I making some sense? It was a beautiful experience, but day one, I knew that I was looking at the broad way that leads to destruction. See, the pathway is what the book says. 
right to the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it's because there's no light in them. So the whole of the Protestant Reformation was about men and women discovering that the church had collapsed into a kind of ecumenical, political, religious system, and it was given to world dominance rather than the glory of God. Y'all keeping up with me? And what happened with Zwingli and what happened with, um, <clears throat> with, with others, not Zwingli, I want to go all the way back to uh, the people that actually began to print the Bible in different, uh, in, in the English version, uh, the Latin version, uh, Wycliffe and Huss and those guys, they were printing the Bible because they wanted people to get the Bible into their hands. Because in Catholicism at that time, you didn't have Bibles. You just listened to what the priest said. And if you were pagan from another country, you didn't understand what they said because they were speaking in Latin. Am I making some sense? The only thing you could do is hope that they throw some water on you and give you a wafer and something in the cup. I don't know what he said, but he threw some water on me and gave me a wafer in the cup. And now he said, I'm good to go. <laughs> I'm watching a series on the Tilla de Hun. I'm watching a series on Marco Polo on Netflix. I shouldn't tell you about it because it's got some really graphic stuff in there, but there's some deep insights into the conflict that was going on in the 12th century, 13th century, 14th century around Catholicism, uh, Islam, and then the uh, Chinese and Mongolian governments. Okay. Very powerful stuff. This series is long and lengthy, and it really is worth understanding if you want to get some insight into the corruption in the church and why we had to have a reformation to bring us back to the Bible in order for us to find the wicked gate again. Does that make some sense? All right. So under point number uh, three, I say uh, this process requires patience. Number uh, sub point B in that same one, this doctrine is called what? The preservation of the saints. You guys got that? I think that's what we called it. Uh, our perseverance of the saints. That's what I did. The perseverance of the saints. And then the next point is how does Christian see himself? You guys see that in there? How does Christian see himself? For those of you who are in class with us, I'm going to expedite this because I need to move forward. By the time Christian gets to the straight gate, he describes himself with three attributions, three characteristics. You want to get these. When uh, Goodwill came to him, he said, who are you and why are you here? And Christian said, because I am a what? Poor, what? Burden sinner. That's what he said. Now, those descriptions would put your average pastor today in a tizzy. Because your average pastor today operates in therapeutics, emotionalism. He, his job is to like hurry up and solve your emotional problem. So he's going to give you a uh, he's going to give you a solution, which is nothing but an incantation. As if he can take away your burden. Y'all keeping up with me. But he can't take away your burden. He can give you a panacea. But there are all kind of panaceas out there. There are all kind of temporary fixes, temporary modes of covering up the burden. Distracting your mind from the burden. Uh, diminishing the impact of the burden through, again, all kinds of mechanisms, but never removing the burden. Am I making some sense? 
I just want to press that home because what I love about uh, Goodwill, when he sent this brother down the road, the way Goodwill closed because after Goodwill had showed Christian all that he needed to uh, hear, told him all that he needed to hear, Christian was still struggling with that burden. And he says, sir, thank you for leading me to where I got to go, which is to the interpreter's house. And we're going to really unpack that. I love that. He says, but what can I do with this burden on my back? Now, remember how worldly wise men pretended like the most important thing for Christian was to get that burden off his back. Remember that? Like the man, your problem is you too conscious of your sin. Right? I'm going to help you, boy. You come to our place, right? The city of morality and legality and his son's civility, they'll help you. They'll give you things you can do to get that off your back. They'll help you think a different way, like, like the, the power of positive thinking. We can get rid of the burden by, man, you can, uh, all you have to do is speak the word of faith. I can take you through every one of them right now. All of the pagan incantations that have entered into the church, like the word of faith movement, just speak it and be it. Have you heard that? Are you kidding? How hypocritical. Just speak the thing into existence, right? Speak those things that are not as if they were. You know what you're doing when you talk like that, ladies and gentlemen? You're playing God. Only God has the right of divine fiat to speak things that are not into existence. Do you think he's going to share that glory with you? And yet the peon leaders in the word of faith movement are constantly telling you you don't have because you're not speaking it into existence. This thing has permeated Hollywood. It's permeated all these groups, have they not? And secular people operate out of them. Again, a lot of your new age movements have adopted the notion that you and I are like little gods and we can speak things into existence. I hear it in Christians among us. I go, how dumb, how dumb can you be to say you can speak things into existence and your kids don't even obey you? That'll come home in a moment. Right, right. How dumb can you be? Right. To say I have power to speak. Things. If you had power to speak stuff into existence, wouldn't you solve every problem you have? And yet you can't get that little four year old child to obey you. You see how delusional that stuff is? Utterly delusional. And, and this is why you and I need to be on the straight and narrow path. Oh, this is great. He says he's a poor, burdened sinner. Can you uh, move to point number four? Because uh, this is what I want to get to now. I'm going to leave that alone. I want to just touch on this briefly because the, there was a question raised. This is where I want to end and do some Q&A. I love this. Notice what it says. He, the, the, the quickly snatching in. You guys remember as the door opened and as Goodwill began to speak to Christian, Christian began to enter into the door into the gate. You guys remember that? And the text says he snatched him and drew him in. Did you guys capture the vividness of that? It's important for us to talk that through because, you know, um, John Bunyan says he had a dream and all this came to him. 
Now, what we know historically is that John Bunyan was a Protestant preacher. He was a nonconformist preacher of his era, as would be some of us in our era as well. We consider all real faithful gospel preachers nonconformist preachers for a lot of reasons. That would have to take time to develop, but it fundamentally means that we do not operate, operate according to the status quo or the fundamental sort of status in which religion operates today. Even our religion in America is captivated and controlled by a lot of legal, corporate, secular power, okay? That's a whole nother conversation. This is why you don't hear certain things at the national level, because there are consequences, right? So um, when he snatched him in, John Bunyan wants you and I to understand that when a sinner comes to that point where they're knocking to enter into the door, it's probably the most dangerous point in their pre-conversion status. Okay, so I'm just going to uh, make an observation. We're going to take some questions from here. Because if, if you're a Christian for any length of time, you know what I'm saying is true. And here is where this revolves around. Follow this now. You must know, one, that the enemy knows that his job is to keep you from Christ. That's his number one job. His number one job to keep you from Christ. This is why Genesis chapter three, verse one says, now the serpent was more subtle than any creature of the field that God had made. When you unpack that context, what you discover is that Satan, represented in the snake, understood how crucial it was to make sure that Adam and Eve, who had free access to the tree of life, which was in the middle of the garden, right next to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'm not making a caricature. It's in your Bible. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. That's in the middle. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil were also there. So we have this, this tandem, do we not? The tandem is one kind of tree and then the tandem is the another kind of tree. Now the tree of life, they could have eaten from. And if they had gotten to the tree of life, they would have had permanent eternal life in a state of innocency forever. Did y'all catch that? Theologically, what that means is that they would have they would have had the gift of immutability. That means they would have never changed. They would have stayed sinless for uh, in perpetuity. But they were not sinless in, in, in what we would call the impeccable sense. They had the ability to corrupt. That's why God told them the tree you don't want to eat is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because in the day you do that, you will discover that you are not impeccable. You will discover that you have the capacity for mutation and death is mutation. Did y'all keep up with me? Right. Before they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they didn't know anything about death. All they knew was life. But they were not perfect yet. They were in what is called a probational state of righteousness because God made them upright, as, as Solomon said, but they failed to actually get to the tree. You see the analogy? 
The analogy from the beginning of the Genesis narrative is get to the tree. Oh, by the way, there's a snake in the garden and there's always snakes in the garden whose job it is to keep you from the tree. And lo and behold, what did our parents do? They were diverted from the way and they died. So you see how John Bunyan is playing out the narrative of of worldly wise man, even at the Genesis three account. Can you see it? Can you see it, you guys? And this is exactly what's going on. I don't want to unpack that. I want to simply say that when when somehow the serpent was able to catch Eve as she was meandering her way to the center of the garden. And before she would have eaten of the tree of the of, of life, he was able to distract her by a conversation that led her to the other tree. Y'all keeping up with me? This is what we call the five D's of the devil. Haven't I taught you this before? The five D's of the devil is first what? Distraction. His goal is to distract you from Christ. That's D number one. D number two is distortion of the true. Hath God said? Of course God said. What do you mean hath God said? No questions with God, he said it. And then when she challenged him on it, he brought about what we would call a delusion. No, that's not what that means. She said, you know, God said in the day I eat of the tree, I'm going to die. That's just straight doctrine, isn't it? No, that's not what that means. What that means is God knows in the day you eat of that, your eyes are going to be open and you're going to know good and evil. We call that propaganda. We call that misinformation. We call that disinformation. We call that Dr. Fauci. We can laugh, but it's true. Every snake lies to you to keep you from the truth. Y'all keeping up with me? So it goes from distraction, turn your eyes away. That's delay. To distortion of the real facts and then a delusion that comes out of the false narrative, which leads to you being deceived. Because once Eve bought the proposition, her eyes turned around in her head. And now the tree that she says, God said, we can't mess with that tree. Now she's all, all of a sudden going, hmm, I can see that the tree is good for food now. The tree is also a tree that can make one wise. You see how she's being deceived? You guys got that? She's being deceived. And then she eats it, and guess what sets in? Destruction. So we got distraction. We've got this uh, distortion of the truth. We got this delusion of the truth. We got this deception of the truth. She's deceived. And then her husband eats with her and they what? Die. It's a spiritual death that takes place. Right. And what the gospel is about is avoiding that tree. Now, the tree of life is Jesus, is he not? I am the way, the truth and the life and no one comes unto the father but by me. That's a good word, isn't it? That's where we want to stop at with this with this idea. And what um, what 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 John Bunyan wants us to capture with the snatching in can be subscribed under one verse is Jude chapter one, verse 24. Listen to it. You've heard it before. I'll talk on it a little bit. Jude, not judges, Jude chapter 124. Jude, Yahuda is Jesus's brother, Jesus, Yahuda. Jacobus was too, James was too. Uh, sorry, go to verse 23, because this is celebrating. 
Oh, okay, start at verse 22. All right, I'm going to start here. So here it says, now some have compassion, making a difference. And this is talking about dealing with people. When you deal with people, uh, let me see what verse 21 says. I don't want to. Yeah, okay. All right. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. That is the preoccupation of the believer. Stay in the love of God. Look for the coming of Christ unto eternal life. Uh, And now verse 22. And on some have what? Right. And this is the idea of doing gospel ministry with the objective of people needing the mercy of God. Compassion and mercy are two sides of the same coin. Now, notice what it says. And if some have compassion doing what? Making a difference. Here's the term literally in the Greek grammar. In the Greek grammar, it's the idea. Make sure you use discernment. That's not making a difference in the sense like you don't even know what that that little clause there means. Have compassion on people. But as you do it, use discernment. Why? Because remember what we learned in Galatians chapter six, verse one. Uh, If you find a brother in a fault, you who are spiritual, restore him in the spirit of meekness and humility, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. It's very possible that when you go to help somebody else, you can fall into the same pit that they're in. And it's extremely important to use discernment when helping them. Also here, this language is about when you and I are helping people, we have to individuate people and know their case. Everybody doesn't have the same case. So you have to be sensitive and sensible about what the case is, about what the need is and meet the need according to that person. Some people is easier. Other people is more difficult. Some people you can be straightforward. Other people you have to deal with roundabouts and dealing with them. The next verse is going to get into the snatching, the snatching. Listen to the language. Verse 23. Here it is. And others save with what? Doing what? Pulling them. The word literally in the Greek grammar is snatch. Snatching them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Now, again, I'm way too long here for us to unpack what that means. But here you get a real sense, don't you, that there is a kind of urgency here in the work of helping people overcome snares here. Did that make some sense? An urgency. The metaphor is they are just about to go to hell. And the labor of the minister is to be urgent and quick about snatching them out from just about collapsing in the hell. That ought to be graphic enough for us to understand the example that took place at the knocking of the door. In your outline under quickly snatching in, you have sub point A, what is the danger of what? And then sub point B, what is the significance of goodwill's action there? I quote what in, under delay? Say it out loud. Y'all got an outline in front of you? Yeah. Say it out loud. Okay, good. I, I know it's 8, 8.30 and it's nice and warm in here. Don't go to sleep on me. Right, so now hold on for a second. So I give you those verses because what those verses are designed to help you do is see the corollary between the verse and the question raised. So look at what the question is. What is the danger of delay? What is the danger of delay for any of us? We could die before we close with Christ. And the mechanisms that that enforce that danger is described in two spheres. First and foremost, 
our own hearts. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. The heart is what? And desperately wicked. Is that what it says? Here you are making your way to Jesus. And then you get the bright idea to take a vacation. Or as you know how the warfare goes, stuff gets in your head. And the next thing you know, you're swirling and you don't close. Am I making some sense? Things will take you down a wrong path because the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. So like Sunday, we're getting ready to have a glorious time with baptizing a bunch of women. And, and some of us heard it on Tuesday night, did we not? In the testimony on Tuesday night, how a young lady, she had intended to come to the waters years ago and something did not allow her to. Am I making some sense? Well, this is what goes on when people are thinking about closing with Jesus and never do. See what I'm getting at? Then also, there are um, what what James said in James chapter 5, verse 8, James chapter 1, verse 5. If anyone is lacking wisdom, they should ask of God. But you got to make sure that when you ask, You're not operating out of a double-mindedness. Listen to what it says. If any one of you lack wisdom, let him do what? And God gives it to people uh, uh, liberally and upbraided not, and it shall be given him. Verse 6. But let him ask in faith, nothing what? For he that waveth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. Verse 7. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. Verse 8, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. That's, that's scary. Isn't it scary? Yeah. Right? You have to think that through. Do you know why? Because you and I have a tendency to be double-minded. Procrastination, presumption, and lazy are the three fellas Christians are going to meet coming down the hill from the cross. And that will be Bunyan having told us that Christian escaped the calamity of those three men because perseverance granted him to get through the door into the straight path to make it to the cross. But how many people perish who said, I'm coming, Lord, but I got to first go feed my kids. You remember the parable? I'm coming, Lord, but I got to bury my dead. I'm coming, Lord, but I just bought 12 yoke of oxen and I got to get this business started. Right? The idea of delay is fundamental to all of our lives if we're not careful about prioritizing. In fact, okay, I'm here. Can somebody uh, take the mic for a few questions? Who can run the mic? All right, there, there you go. Come on, Jay. I'm here. I'll say this as we just, we only take a few. Um, thank you for your patience. I, I do want to get at this and we'll just go from here and we'll pick up on Tuesday with uh, the interpreter's house. Um, raise your hand if you, if you got a question or observation. If not, I'm going to keep talking. Raise your hand. Don't wait too long. There we go. Um, and then way back in the back with David. Um, Jesus gave a parable in the Gospel of Luke. He gave a parable about the ten version. And in the parable of the ten version, five were wise and five were what? 
You guys, raise your hand if you guys remember the parable. Okay, good, 80%. Nope, 50%. So you don't know. The parable was about presumption and delay. Five of the versions didn't take oil with their lamps. Five did. The five did had oil when it was late and it was dark because they were intent on meeting the master when he called. Now, the oil represents the spirit of the living God and the lamp represents the Bible. Thy word is a lamp. A lamp holds light. A lamp is not the light. It holds the light. The light is a candle that's sustained by oil. And that oil is the spirit of the living God. And the spirit of the living God has to give us illumination through his word so we can see the truth as it is in Jesus. And it's not just a dead letter that's curiously boggling down our mind. I need to see the truth of God's word. Moreover, those five wise versions, when the call came, they immediately trimmed their lamps and start making their way to Jesus, didn't they? The other five had to go out and try to find some oil. We just watched the movie, didn't we? Leave the world behind. When the satellites go out, and the coordinates are off. If you don't already have the oil, how difficult is it going to be in a dark world to find truth at a time when chaos is striking? I'll leave you with that. Because it has happened repeatedly throughout human history where people were not prepared to meet the Lord. I'm making some sense, right? I love this where I am right now. Can I tell you why? I was 19 years old when God was dealing with me in his mercy and his grace. I told you what happened. I just fell in love with the Bible. But he also gave me several very old stellar theologians to pour into me. And the preaching in the late 70s and early 80s was nothing like this stuff that's going on today. It was so sober. It was so crystal clear. It was so poignant. Uh, three or four, James uh, Boyce was one of my big cats. And then um, another one was Donald Gray Barnhouse. He was another one of my big cats. And then there were several others that I, I don't want to name their ancillary, but they were very good. Now, remember how they preached. They preached like, um, like um, they preached as if people were really going to hell. And I remember that vividly as a young man because I would listen to them to the wee hours in the morning on the radio, nine o'clock at night, 10 o'clock at night, 11 o'clock at night after work. And the preaching was just so straightforward, no jokes, none of this Hollywood entertainment type of preaching you hear today. The difference was like night and day. When I was done listening to three or four sermons, it was as if I was pilgrim under evangelist preaching because my soul was saying, Jess, did you hear what they said? I'm only 19. I don't know nothing like we don't. Right. But here are ministers serious about you getting your soul right with God. It was so 
so refreshing. The next day we were dealing with crazy world. You had this voice speaking into your ear. This is what John Bunyan is doing with, 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 with Pilgrim, is he not? He's letting us know, Pilgrim, get into the door. Don't delay. Remember what, what, what uh, Goodwill said. It's because the enemy of your soul has strategically set up a castle right outside of the gate for which he shoots arrows at the hearts of anyone trying to get in. I'll talk about that next week. Who has the mic? Michael? Michael, did you have a mic? All right, talk to me, man. So I was reading a commentary about Spurgeon on the narrow gate and on the pathway that Christian first took where he got sort of distracted by worldly wise man. So that's before the narrow gate. Right. Okay. Even though, so even though he was directed by evangelists, you see that narrow gate over there. And he said, no, I don't see it. Well, you see the light. Yeah, I see the light. And he, I don't think Christian delayed, but he got distracted along the way until he got to the narrow gate. No, the, not there. Once he's there. Once he's there. Once, he's, once he's there with evangelists the second time. Yeah. No delay. I'm talking about the first time. Okay, so you're, you're mixing up. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to understand where the, the commentary was saying that evangelists kind of blew it the first time by not explaining how earnest Christians should have been to get there. That would, that would be, uh, I get you. This is a kind of rabbit hole. I think I said this on Wednesday night. I'll say it again here. There are so many commentaries on the Pilgrim's Progress, so many different critiques, uh, analytical critiques of the early Puritans, Catholics, everybody attacked John Bunyan's writings because they wanted to tell you and tell me what they thought the procedure of salvation should be and that in some areas uh, John Bunyan didn't treat the subject as well as he could have. In other areas, he overworked the subject. And so uh, Mr. Spurgeon, who lived a little bit after John Bunyan, mm. is enjoying an experience of ministry that I must say was quite different than Bunyan's. So what I'm doing is listening to two ministers talking about salvation from their own perspectives. They're not bad. They're just different. Did that make some sense? And as powerful as Spurgeon was, a lot of works. The reality is God used Bunyan in a way in which it's undeniable that the hand of the Holy Ghost was on him. Yet he's open to critique. So we're not going to go into that analysis because it's late. Um, You just have to watch that when you're going. You can draw a concluding statement if you want to. What I think I gathered from tonight, what you were saying is Christian's initial walk towards the narrow gate wasn't earnest. Right. In so much as he really wasn't truly convicted. No. And the second time... No, 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 I, I want to... I'm with you. We're okay. going to have a conversation. But the second I don't want, time, well, he was much more understanding of his peril. 
Right. So it's not that he wasn't truly convicted. He was truly convicted. Go mm. back and read him. He wasn't deeply convicted enough. Mm, okay. That's, see, we're, what we're working through is John 16, 8, category A, convinced of sin. This is what I'm working with you guys on. All the way up to, even now, he's not done being under the conviction of sin. Even when he gets into the wicked gate, he's not done. His burden is still there until he gets up that hill. Mm-hmm. Right. So we're under the first work of the spirit, which I personally appreciate what John Bunyan is doing. He's saying the work of bringing a man or a woman to a level of conviction of sin before they close with Christ at Calvary can be extensive and long and drawn out. Mm-hmm. I know that to be true as a pastor. When it comes to Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he's saved at 19 years old. He's a single man. And about a year or two later, he's preaching at the tabernacle because a prominent pastor dies, one of them of which is John Gild, and another one of them Bunyan, I mean, then uh, Spurgeon. And Spurgeon is having success everywhere. Okay, Spurgeon, just because the Lord used you to bust wide open England doesn't mean he's going to use everybody the same way. Okay, Spurgeon, so, you know, by the time you're 25, all of England knows about you and America knows about you. John Bunyan stayed relatively obscure almost all of his life. God works with us all in different ways. Am I making some sense? I just wanted to embellish upon that because it is beautiful. And I could take you guys through a plethora of different theologians and perspectives at that time. And I don't want to do it. Did what do what I say help a little bit, Michael? Yeah, it was just a gradual incremental increase in the depths of his conviction that was coupled with experience now that helped him go, oh, okay, now I can see how deceitful. I mean, by the time he's done with worldly wise man, he's been wide open to evangelists and evangelists is reproving him. And by the time he gets to the wicked gate, he's saying, look, I don't even deserve to be here. That's beautiful. A broken and a contrite heart, the Lord will never despise. He's closer to God than he was the day before. Am I making some sense? All right, very good, very good. Thank you, I I love this kind of commentary. Who else has the mic? My sister Jamila, go ahead on. So last week you mentioned the term backsliding and you said that you were gonna circle back to it, but I don't think you did and I just wanted to know if you can. Is that Hosea chapter 416? It's in your previous outline. Pull up Hosea 4.16 if it'll show up. The word backsliding is used two or three different times in the Old Testament. Thank you for that, because this will be answering the second question after. Oh, yeah. See, the old man ain't ain't that senile. Yeah, look at that. For Israel slideth back as a backsliding what? Now, don't deal with the second line yet, because that just means he's getting ready to bring them into political and civil judgment. They're going to suffer for it. That first line, what does it mean to be a backslider? Great question. Do I have any questions up there, by the way, in the, uh, in the Zoom? None? Okay, please do. Um, let's talk that through for just a minute. It's not hard, but it needs to be understood. So, um, again, 
you know, church in the 21st century, I have observed, ladies and gentlemen, our churches are not really good at theology, particularly in the Old Testament. I got a reason why, and it's emerging today with hyper-Zionistic ideology, but the problem is we should have been much more serious about how to exegete scripture in the Old Testament in a critically analytical way. Uh, The prophets use this term going all the way to the book of Deuteronomy, and the idea of being a backsliding heifer is the idea of perpetually rebelling against God's rule over your life. The, the heifer is a young female cow. Like you and I know, you know, the delusion of Israel looking for a red heifer so they can start ministry all over again. I told you, if they find one, it'll be a genetically modified mRNA technology red heifer, right? And we'll have a conversation when that shows up because delusional things are going on in that dimension. That is the Antichrist system getting set up right now. Um, the idea of the red heifer is that when you put the yoke on her and you try to drive her down the field because the heifer is supposed to be plowing, all of us are called to join Jesus in his yoke. Jesus is the ox trading out the corn and we're supposed to tread with him. Am I making sense? Well, the heifer pushes back every time the owner tells them to go forward. They push back. You see the metaphor? Backsliding heifer. And it's the idea of perpetually rebelling against God's word to do what he said. Now, if that's not the history of national Israel, then I know you're not reading your Bible. Because the prophets said it all the way up to the first martyr of the New Testament church. Stephen said it in Acts chapter 7. He says, as your fathers did, so do ye always resist the Holy Spirit. Am I making some sense? Right. So um, to be a backslider... It's not this weird event where you're, you're walking with God and then all of a sudden you, you, you backslide. That's the term they use. You go back to your old ways. No. No. Backsliding meaning you're not obeying God from the get-go. You're constantly pushing. The, that was Israel's whole thing. They were backsliding in their heart before they even crossed the Red Sea. Moses, why did you bring us out here to kill us? When they got over on the other side, I'm thirsty. You brought us out to the wilderness so we can die fast. A day later, I'm hungry. What is there to eat? They were backsliding all the time. Am I making some sense? They get into the promised land after God has to wipe out everyone 40 and older. And then they get into the promised land and they do not, once Joshua's dead, keep the land that Joshua helped them get. And God had already told him in Deuteronomy, you are rebellious, you are stiff-necked, you are like a child that when the father reaches to the shoulder, you turn the shoulder away. Like, I'm not going to do what you say. That's what that term means. You got a secondary question to add to that, sis? Okay. Yeah, so it's not, a, it's not this thing where every now and then we lapse into stupidity. We're going to lapse into stupidity. Am I, am I making some sense? No, this is a kind of perpetual. The backslider is the individual that has made a profession of faith, but never, ever takes the gospel seriously. Okay, it's just ne- and, and this is a weird thing about them. They'll fight you over them being saved. Okay, and that's the problem. There is a 
there is a permanent cognitive dissonance in the mind of some people. They say they say, but nothing about their behavior indicates it because they're perpetually rebelling against God's word. Did that make some sense? It's so true. So true. Did somebody else have the mic? Go, go on, David. You got the mic? Pop it up and then you can give it there. We got one more, one more minute. I'm going to shut it down from here. Go on, um, You was talking about um, earlier, like people putting too much stock in having like professing or declaring or like thinking that they have uh, power over manifesting stuff. Um, and I was going to ask, do you think those people um, take Proverbs eighteen twenty one too serious? And how much? How much should we? They don't. Put, they don't take it too serious. They misinterpret it or mis, misinterpret. That's what I mean. And do you think um, life how, and death are in the power of the tongue? And they that eat, they they that eat it, they that do it, eat the fruit thereof. That's the text that he's talking about, right? Yes. Yes. And, well, I'm on it tonight. Am I on it or what? Boy? Some some days I don't know what planet I'm on, but tonight I'm on it, boy. And um, don't even quote a verse. Just think about a verse, David. I bet you I get it. Don't even quote it. Just think. About oh, it. I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about a verse. What is it? <laughs> and how much should we take in? Um, consideration to, to like things like um, James 310 when it talks about having uh, blessings and curses in our and, right. in our right. Um, right. in our tongue and then also Jacob uh, is James is really that's a, a English translation of the Greek term Jacobus so James was really Jacob he was Jesus' brother just like Yehuda Judah and what James James was a no-nonsense brother James is a no-nonsense brother he, he's he was John, James the Pious. And what he said was, you know, believers should not have sweet water and bitter waters coming out of the same fountain. That's what Jesus meant when he says a good tree cannot bring forth bad fruit and a bad tree cannot bring forth good fruit. Right. And, and now now my boy David is actually coming around the corner and asking a different question than the one that has to do with those who are talking about, you know, uh, life and death are in the power of the tongue. That text there in Proverbs that he's quoting, Proverbs 18, Proverbs is cut up into three categories. And I teach us this. Most people don't get it. The first category is a father-son relationship. That's verses, uh, chapters 1 through about chapter 17. And then around chapter 17 to chapter 18 up to about chapter 25, it's a king-servant. This is where you read about kings and servants. Y'all keeping up with me? Solomon is the one who wrote the Proverbs. So Solomon both was a son and his father, David, was his father. Just like in the faith, you and I are sons and and God is our father, right? But Jesus is king and we're also his servants, are we not? So we talked about three covenant paradigms, right? Father, son, king, servant. What's the last covenant paradigm? Husband, wife. The New Testament gospel is Christ is our husband and we are his bride. So Proverbs 31 gives us the husband and wife paradigm. Those categories are needed, needed to understand. Am I helping some of you? So when you get to Proverbs chapter 18 and go all the way through, particularly when you get to chapter 20 and forward, it's the king servant uh, uh, a paradigm. And kings had the power of death and life in their authority. They could decree that you live or decree that you died. 
This is what I'm saying. I'm watching right now Marco Polo, and it's crazy what was happening back in the day with Attila the Hunt and, and the, uh, the Mongolian rulers and even with, with the papacy because they got caught up in a power dynamic as well as you guys are already seeing in the Middle East as well. This notion that you can just decree people dying is the idea of playing like God, and you guys know the kings took on a kind of God-like authorial position, did they not? They can let people live or they can let people die. That interpretation that I just rendered to you makes sense, doesn't it? The idea that you can speak things into life or speak things into death is foolishness. Now, God may bless you and I when we set our heart to do something. But you know what James told us about anything that we set our hearts to do? If the Lord wills, I'll do this, I'll do that. You don't get to just override a sovereign God's will and just say, I'm decreeing this, I'm decreeing that, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. Like, like God doesn't have a will that we should submit to and obey and do. But this stuff goes way back to the 70s with the word of faith movement. I'm here to tell you it's nothing but incantation and it does not work at the real practical level. Now, people can delude themselves into saying, you know, I spoke that thing and then the next day I know I got a job. Well, Another person got the same kind of job you did on the same day that you did, and they don't even know God. Well, how did that work? So in religion, you got to be very careful about the postmodern fantasizing of bringing things into realistic existence in your own mind, because all that is is a delusional construct. Am I making some sense? And people love to be taught that stuff. So the preacher himself, he definitely speaking things into existence through the offerings that give that guy millions of dollars every week, every month and so forth and so on. Stop giving him that money and see how quick he lose his power of decreeing things into existence. Am I making some sense? The church needs to wake up. All right. One more. Who, who had the mic? OK, my boy. Oh, come on. Come on, boy. You, you've been with me 500 years. It ain't got but one knob. Leave him alone. It's got one knob on there. Come on. <laughs> hey, and Tracy, you got a green light. All right. Um, so kind of got a two-part thing going on. My sister back here, uh, which was asking about backsliding, uh, that was a good question because uh, I, I'm perplexed about it. So... In simplicity, backsliding uh, would be not a believer? Uh, in a sense, but it's more than that. So if you heard me, yes, it would be not a believer and consistently not doing anything that even constitute the ways of a believer. Yeah, they can't because they're not, they're not born again. And, and yet they're playing church. Yeah, so they're not a believer. Right? They're not a true believer. Right. All right, so sit with me, because I'm teaching these folks this. I got it, got it. So one of the things that the Pilgrim Progress is showing you, and we're not done because he got a whole lot of characters we got to run with that are phonies. And they'll be talking about being a believer. And Jesus said many believed on his name, but he didn't commit himself to them because he knew what, what's in their heart. In the parable of the shallow ground or stony ground hearer, they believed for a while. We talked this last week. So there is a superficial believing that does not correspond to what it means to be truly born again. And we, gotta, we have to reckon with that. 
Otherwise, you will have contradictions in your Bible. So Jesus said in John 8, 31 and 32, if you are indeed my disciples, you will continue in my word. And you will know the truth and the truth shall set you free. See, the doctrine of perseverance and preservation of the saints becomes the evidence that you're truly a believer. We just read that in Hebrews chapter 10, 38, where the writer says, and, and if any draw back, my soul has no pleasure un, 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 with him. But we are not those that draw back to perdition, but believe to the saving of our soul. Correct. And, <clears throat> did, that make, to- did that make sense to you guys? So you hear perseverance in the scriptures and sober believers know, and I've shared this with all of us, I want you to finish, but just for the record, I've said this to everybody, stop telling people you're saved. Don't tell nobody you're saved. Right, why why tell, let me ask a question. When the last time somebody just walked up into you, excuse me, ma'am, excuse me, are you saved? You don't hear it. So why do you guys say, you know, I'm saved, sanctified, filled with the Holy Ghost, speaking in tongues. Why, why you got to do that? Because what if you're not? Okay. Hold, hold on. I'm, I, I want to I make sure this gets home because we are a lot of new people among us. Got it. And I want them to understand the broad concept of salvation yeah. is one where we make our calling and election sure up until the day we breathe our last breath. We don't play with this idea of nomenclature terms. That's what this religious age loves to do. Put a label on it. And just because they say they are, they are. That doesn't, you're not a Christian just because your name is Christian. And you're not, you're, 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 you're not a Christian just because you, you came to the altar and prayed the sinner's prayer. That's very clear. This is, what, this is why a lot of churches don't like John Bunyan's uh, Pilgrim's Progress. Because this thing is about continuing until you get to the celestial city. Right? And, but that's your Bible. Isn't that the tenor of your Bible? Isn't the tenor of your Bible, he that endures unto the end, the same shall be saved? Right. So we know that salvation is a three-part reality, right? Saved positionally in Christ. Saved personally when we are truly born again and saved permanently when we get to glory. Did y'all get those three categories? And between personal and permanent, you and I are wrestling with a body that will jack you up from time to time and make you wonder, is it real or not? And then what Jesus will simply say, just humble yourself and make your calling and election short. Don't, you don't have to tell anybody anything. If grace is working, it'll show up in your life and people who are discerning will pick up on your sincerity, pick up on your perseverance, pick up on you when you fall, watch you. Watch to see if you're going to get back up. Watch to see if you're going to move forward. Watch to see whether or not you're going to abandon absolute commitment to the crown rights of Jesus and his atoning work in your behalf. Are y'all, you guys hearing me? Right. This is so. Do you know what's the most beautiful thing to me? No matter what kind of struggle saints go through. Because right now I got a sister that's. uh, She's on her way to glory. That's my job. I love walking with them across the Jordan. Do you know why? Because they're just about done with this crazy fight. They're just about done. Did that make some sense? They're just about to cross over. And, 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 and as they are waning, as they are getting less hungry, as they are getting more tired, guess what they're not doing? 
They're not, not looking to Christ. They're not saying, I don't want to hear you pray. They're not saying, I don't want to hear you read the scriptures. They're glad when somebody is helping them cross Jordan. We're not there yet in the Pilgrim's Progress, but we're going to get there. How privileged it is to help somebody cross Jordan. And it doesn't matter what their life was 50 years hence. So long as they're about to cross Jordan and their hope is in their forerunner who's already crossed into glory for them. This is the doctrine of the thief on the cross. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost anyone who comes to him when this is what I love about goodwill. I can preach all over again. Goodwill cannot come in. Absolutely. You can come in, swing the doors wide. We love people coming to the straight and narrow gate. Let me snatch you in. Come on in. Right, right. No equivocations, no hesitation. The master didn't bring you all this way for you to miss glory. All that the father gives me shall come to me and him that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. What a beautiful attitude on Goodwill's part. He's not saying pay some indulgences at the door and then I'll open up. He's hungry for souls to close with Christ. That's how we should be. And not receiving people with doubtful disputation. Come on in. We got a long journey to go. You can follow me as I follow Christ. See what I'm saying? What else, bro? What else? I had a lot else, but you took a lot of my time. Okay, good. And so, so uh, in regards to that, because at this moment, I'm desiring to make McCollin an election sure. You know, I, I often engage in you things. Weren't, that you weren't my, doing that yesterday? No. You weren't doing that the day before? No, no. I, I think about the Lord all the time. You know, I'm able to discern things in my in my stupidity, uh, uh, right or wrong, all the time. But yeah, I, you know, I choose wrong. Often. Did you did do you reject him in your soul when you choose wrong? No. Do you deny his accomplished redemption at the cross when you when you fall prey to your sinful tendency? No, I'm just being a child that doesn't like to listen to my parent because I want to go out and have some fun. I understand that. You know, so so what I'm saying is like, uh, so for because I heard I heard you mention this before, uh, a homeless individual on the street who to us. Uh, does not look like he's producing any fruit because he's stuck on the, in the gutter on crack, but yes, yet having an actual born-again salvation in his life, and he's, gonna, he's more saved than some of us here in the church. So would that guy be considered backslidden? Because he doesn't look like producing, he's producing fruit. Right, and so, no, you don't know. So right. let me, let, I'm right. going to shut it down with that one, because this is a beautiful... Well, I got one more little piece on Galatians okay. 6, if I, if I can. Okay. So let me just make an observation. Yeah. These kind of propositions should be carefully treated. Don't be roughshod and overgeneralizing the proposition. Can I just explain a little bit? So if one is truly born again, and that is a thing. When you are truly born again, you can never not be born again. And like, it's not like you can be born again and then unborn again. Like 
you were born the first time, you're not going to never not be born physically. When you're born again spiritually, you are never not going to be born again spiritually. If a person is born again, they have eternal life. Did y'all keep up? Y'all got that? This is so important. That's the, that's the crowning jewel of what we call the celebratory summons. You must be born again. And when you're born again, you'll never need to be born again. I don't care what you are going through. I don't care how bad it gets, how deep it gets, how painful it is, how wrecked your body is, how wrecked your mind is, how wrecked your circumstances are. I can just go down the list. I can tell you about my brothers that made it out of Vietnam. Born again. Struggling with addiction and post-traumatic stress disorder and suicide and pathological expressions of all kind. Trapped in a body that has been traumatized and abused by the system. But the spirit of God, as the scripture says, but we have received the incorruptible seed of the gospel by which you're born again. And so my inner man is renewing and my outer man is perishing. And the paradoxical reality of that makes some people wonder because I happen to be one of those that is the casualty of a whole litany of rebellion on my part and rebellion on other people's part. And now my life is being shut down in the area of what we would call obvious fruit bearing, upward mobility, kind of prosperous obedience, which is fine. God would like that with all of us, but not all of us are going to have that journey. Not all of us going to have that journey. See, if you let the Bible teach it to you very carefully, Lazarus, the beggar, looked it bad. None of the Pharisees called him saved. He was a beggar in the street with swords and wounds. And he was pitied and mocked and ridiculed. There was no external evidence that he was a thriving believer. And he was born again. This is called the mystery of godliness, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And I promise you, if Lazarus had to answer before the public opinion as to the mess that he's in, he could give you all kinds of reasons why he's there. But as you're going to learn when we get into the interpreter's house, an interpreter took Christian to a man standing beside a wall and a flame was going up. And on that side where the flame was going up, the devil was pouring water on it to quench that fire. And it was going down and down and down. And then you notice the next thing happening, the flame comes back up. And Christian is going, what is this? An interpreter takes him around to the backside of the wall 
and shows him a man who has a picture of oil. And every time the devil pours water on him, the man with the picture of oil pours oil on the fire. That man is Christ Jesus. The oil is the spirit of grace that won't let the fire go out no matter how much water you pour on it. This is because he who hath began a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. My sheep hear my voice. Another they will not follow. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish and no one shall pluck them out of my hand. My father who gave them to me is greater than I and no one is able to pluck them out of his hand. This is where glory is going to have a day of absolute splendid triumph on the part of the father for a host, an innumerable host of rebel sinners saved by grace broken in the flesh, but kept by the Spirit. Right, I would hope none of us in here would have to go through the kind of tragedies that some of our brothers and sisters have to go through. But I know we will. I know we will. See, children of God, often Christianity wants to make this thing easy and cut and dry. But nothing about life is easy and cut and dry. Nothing about life is easy and cut and dry, except we have a Savior who can meet us in the depths of our pit and keep us in the midst of darkness. Maybe to preserve us just for the last day so that some of us will just be tokens of his eternal mercy to be displayed with the rest of the saints when he comes again so that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And nobody will boast about how many good works they did and how many souls they saved and how many miracles they performed. We all got in on the same ground. The grace of God in Christ. High, low, black, white, green, male, female of every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue across the world to the end of time. That's what heaven is about. And I saw a number that no man could name, says Revelation chapter 7, who were praising God for having redeemed them out of every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue, saying hallelujah, hallelujah to the Lamb of God that was slain and he hath redeemed us. To him be all praise, glory, dominion, power forever and forever and forever. This is a sinner's gospel. All right, let me close in prayer. Father, thank you for your goodness and your mercy. Thank you for your warnings. Thank you for a Savior who ate and drank with sinners and publicans and tax collectors. He ate with Pharisees as well. Glad to hear it. He ate with the aristocrats. Yes, he did. He ate with power brokers as well. But we all have to come through the straight gate and the narrow way. And may we all be humbled enough to realize that no matter who we are, doesn't matter who we are. May we come to find your son sufficient to save us. As we go our way, give us traveling mercies. This we are praying in Jesus' name.